Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey friends, welcome to the Tennis and Bagels podcast. This is your co-host, Vanch, and uh, today... Um, I will be presenting this podcast a little bit different than uh, our usual setup, but uh, joining me today is uh, my wonderful host, Andre, as usual. Andre, how are you doing today? I'm great, man. Thanks for asking. Thanks for hosting today. My pleasure. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure. Um, so today we actually have a, a lot to recap in the tennis world. Um, a little bit of a difficult topic to begin with, but then we'll get into London and we'll start talking about tennis. Um, but joining us to break it all down is a uh, previous guest uh, on this show, Gil Gross from Monday Match Analysis. Gil, how are you? Uh, how are you doing today? And uh, how's everything going? I'm good, Vonch. Uh, thank you. And Andre, thank you guys both for having me again. It was fun the first time and definitely a, a heavy topic to start off this time. But um, it's uh, it's great to be on with you guys, as always. For sure. So, um you know, I guess we can start by uh, talking a little bit about the elephant in the room, which is um, Alexander Zverev um, has been doing well on the court, you know, since a long time, since this break, uh, since this hiatus is over. He's with David Ferrer and he's been doing, you know, exceptional on the court by his standards, U.S. Open final, two titles in Cologne. Um, now, after those two titles in Cologne, there was a uh, allegations that came out, uh, pretty serious and disheartening allegations, actually, from his ex-girlfriend, Olya Sharapova. hope I'm pronouncing that right. But uh, she accused Alexander Zverev of uh, emotional and physical abuse during their relationship, um, dating back to the U.S. Open in 2019. And, you know, recently we've seen her account of all the horrific details and are following her Instagram stories and the posts. And we've seen um, Ben Rothenberg actually reach out to a couple of their mutual friends and do a proper interview with them uh, and actually visit and sit down with Olia and get her account. And it's a pretty harrowing read. Uh, I encourage all of our listeners to check it out. I think we'll definitely put it in, the, in our show notes. But uh, just going off of that and even before uh, Zverev played in the Paris Masters, uh, what was your, what was your assessment of the whole thing, and how did, as imagine it must have made it pretty hard to follow tennis. Yeah, it was it was difficult and disappointing to see in the first place, and uh, you know this it's always it's always hard because everyone kind of has this uh, internal question of, you know, without but basically who should we believe because someone is lying here. 
because Verev has uh, flat out denied the allegations and uh, Olya's allegations are are detailed. And when they initially came out, it was just an Instagram post uh, post detailing one incident at the U.S. Open. But as uh, as Ben Rothenberg uh, looked into it and did journalism on it, as you alluded to, Vonch, we found out that uh, her story is now corroborated by two people. Uh, there are um, WhatsApp texts that also serve as evidence um, for parts of the story. And one thing that I think has been disappointing is that Alexander has not uh, really taken the allegations seriously publicly. He did not denounce domestic abuse until earlier today. Uh, he said, quote, under my mask, I'm smiling, despite people bringing me down. And I can tell you, Andre and Vonch, if someone falsely accused me of domestic abuse, falsely, if someone falsely accused me of domestic abuse, I would not be smiling. It would be weighing on me. It would be a very difficult thing to deal with. So uh, I found Zverev's response, and I'm not diagnosing him here, but I found his response in a vacuum to be a little bit sociopathic. Man, I, <clears throat> sorry, I, I was exactly thinking, I was thinking the exact same thing, but like, uh, just to, to follow up on a bunch of questions first is, uh, uh, at first, uh, when, when those things come out, they normally come out like with very little detail and it's just a basic an accusation and, um, um, just to kind of like allude a little bit to what they discussed a bit in the tennis podcast with the whole like hashtag of, uh, believe women and stuff like that. It's, it's tough to, um, navigate those situations, especially being a man, like being a man does not make it any easier for us to, uh, perceive those, those things coming at us. But, um, at first the, the thing for me is, um, take a step back and like take a deep breath and, and just think about it. Like this is a serious accusation. I don't want to assume that any side is right or, or wrong or uh, guilty or innocent. At, at first, what I want to see is this story unfold a little bit. So I, I was at first just not quick to accuse Verev of being an abuser at first. However, as uh, you guys mentioned, all of the things that have been happening, the, the train has kept, has kept going, uh, more details have surfaced, and uh, Zverev has already um, said lots of things and probably is not to his favor that he's playing so much tennis right now so that he gets asked a lot of questions uh so now it's it's just kind of getting tough to believe this very part of the situation the more he denies it the less he gives away of uh things that may have happened so like he's not like saying for example, I fully agree with you, with you, Gil. Like, I would not have a smile on my face. The, the first thing that I find would be an important um, attitude for him would be to go out and say, um, I take those allegations very seriously. I believe uh, domestic abuse is, is, is a serious thing and you should not be taken lightly. And I am deeply disturbed by this. And I will make sure that uh, we will follow through with this. And I will prove that I am not, that I am not guilty of this in the case... Assuming that I'm Zverev and I'm denying this accusation, I feel like this would be a better way to do so. <clears throat> but instead of instead of doing this, he's, he's treating her like a like an internet troll. Like, oh yeah, Zverev double faults like 12, uh, 18 times during a match. This is when you're like, oh yeah, the, there are people trying to take me down, and I have a smile on my face. This is the type of situation that you say that not to a person that accuses you of of a very serious and violent crime, because the things that she mentioned is not 
as you said, like it's it's physical and emotional. He literally could have killed her in one of the instances with the, the pillow, like ch- just choking her with the pillow in a hotel. So yeah, this is this is probably the most disturbing of the whole situation, I guess. Yeah, very well said. And I think um, you know, you you alluded to the fact that you know a lot of times in situations like this, we tend to believe the male and we tend to believe the the man in in situations like this. And I think it's just it's another situation where we're not taking both ATP and uh, Zverev are not taking the appropriate responsibility uh, and really addressing these um, accusations as they should. I mean, if we just look at all the evidence that Olya uh, had in that piece and the fact that, you know, it happened on ATP, it's important to know that it happened at an ATP tournament. It happened at the US Open. It happened at Labor Cup. You know, there was, you know, she almost took her own life um, because of the uh, the abuse. It was just too much. And so to hear the way Zverev has, has addressed this, I mean, he was asked, you know, it, it must be said that he did do an Instagram post uh, sort of two weeks ago, just kind of cl- a very clumsy uh, post, I thought, very shoddy kind of uh, not really addressing it with the same vigor that he really should have and you know talking about how it's um he mentioned some things like we have me olia and i have known each other for a really long time and this we've been having this relationship for a long time and it's like not really didn't really get to the heart of the incident and it was very clumsily written it was grouped it was juxtaposed in with the other piece of news that he's going to be a father which i thought was a little strange but you know aside from that he was asked multiple multiple times in press in Paris to address it. And he basically said, you know, I have nothing else to add right now. I mean, the relationship has been going on a long time. I'm enjoying my time on the court. He was almost in a way using it as fuel to kind of show that, look how good I am at uh, compartmentalizing everything that's going off the court to my on-court game that even with all these distractions, you know, look at me, I'm almost invincible. And you're you're right when you say that that's a reaction to, to have towards an, a more of, uh, to fans that are against you or maybe like, you know, use that negativity and convert it to positive, but not for something as serious as domestic abuse. I just think he totally missed the tone. And to say in his on-court speech afterwards and actually have the galls to, you know, say that I'm trying to wipe a smile off my face, but underneath this mask, I'm smiling brightly. And I feel so incredible on the court. Everything is great in my life. And there'll always be people who will pull you down and I'm trying to, and they can keep on trying because it's not going to work. I mean, I also think that if had the ATP had you know done a little bit more about it and released a proper statement at least acknowledging that you know we abhor domestic violence we don't approve of we don't approve of it and we're doing a private investigation maybe on the side and this is where we really get into the intricacies of tennis and all the conflicts of interest and everything going on you know behind the scenes that tennis is not like an individual's uh, is not like the other sports in that sense that we don't have a league or one kind of governing body that really has a stance on domestic abuse or even, um, you know, a, a code that you can follow. Like in the NFL, we've seen so many, so many cases of this. But it just doesn't seem to be taken um, very seriously. And it's left this kind of vacuum of silence to where a lot of fans feel just uncomfortable talking about Zverev in general, a lot of commentators as well. Um, I'm wondering, Gil, if you have anything, uh, you know, more pressing on, on that that you felt. Well, it took until uh, today as we record this on uh, on Friday for the ATP to release a statement 
So uh, there was a really, really long delay, and multiple people, most of the most of the biggest journalists in the sport, called for the ATP to release a statement, and it took extremely long for them to do so. Uh, once they finally did, it became kind of clear why they hadn't, uh, because they are not prepared for this situation, clearly, uh, because they basically rely on the legal system, according to their statement. I'm not just making this up. They basically say that we rely on the legal system to dictate what we do uh, in terms of disciplinary actions uh, as it relates to off-court incidents, which doesn't surprise anyone who's been following the Nicholas Basilashvili case, who uh, has right. actually had charges pressed against him, and the ATP has done nothing independently there. What I think people should understand in the tennis bubble is that this is not typical of not only the other sports leagues, but any large corporation. If if you take, uh, let's say, Google, just to use an example that everyone knows, if a high executive in Google has a public domestic abuse, domestic abuse case, that employee is going to go on domestic, uh, excuse me, is going to go on paid leave, and they are going to do an investigation independent of the legal system. That's what that's what typically happens. It is very clear that the ATP is not in a position to do that, does not have that infrastructure in place, and that is quite. Uh, that, that, I don't know if it's a problem or not, but certainly it's, uh, something that's surprising. Mm. Honestly, let me tell I think this is a hundred percent a problem because the fact that, um, Sharapova decided not to press charges essentially just blew a hole in the entire, uh, ATP, um, process of, dealing with the situations you just you mentioned nicholas basilashvili who had a, had this deal and like once the legal system is in, is in place you can make as many statements as as you want because you're not you, you you've basically washed your hands you're just like um surfing on the wave that somebody else has already started um and they don't necessarily need to do anything there is a an organism that the legal justice system is already there just trying to take care of it but Whoever is in there, the crisis, man crisis management uh, positioning or whoever is, uh, well, if there is an agency like uh, there is doing PR for them with internal, uh, they should break up with those uh, people right now because this is just terrible, terrible PR. And it's not the first time that the ATP this year has been challenged with this. I don't know if they're um, overworked with uh, things to do media wise. But they're just this year has been terrible for the ATP in general. Uh, just starting with COVID and now with this, they've just been terrible to answer. They they've been slow to answer. They've been um, uh, vague in the statements most of the time. Um, I've had to ask. Uh, well, during uh, one of the, a thread in uh, when you posted the the statement from the ATP, which was like two six lines paragraph, very short thing. Um, I was wondering if there was a thing between the the contractors as as players and the and the association that kind of maybe prevented them to um, conduct any sort of a accusa um, in, independent uh, investigation, and it just that doesn't just doesn't seem to be the case in all honesty, and it seems more and more um, obvious that the ATP could have and should have taken action earlier. Um, if they don't learn with this right now, I can't see you know if another situation like this happens it's not going to be good for them and it's already terrible for the sport if the, the clause states something about the reputation of the sport 
the sport has already taken a lot of damage just in those couple of weeks that they didn't release a statement. So, yeah, I feel like it's it would be a good time for them to uh, to act independent of the legal system. And if this, they're not prepared for it, that they would should they should uh, start getting prepared for it. Like use this as a, as a precedent, as a case, and be like, hey, look, there's a problem. We need to solve this. It's it's an emergency. And if I could add something yeah. real quick, to rely on the justice system is even more insufficient in cases of domestic abuse because according to the U.S. Department of Justice in 2018, uh, less than half of non-fatal instances of domestic abuse are actually prosecuted in the court of law. Correct, yeah. That was from an article today by Tamani Carroll uh, from The Guardian who mentioned that stat actually as well. And it's just uh, it's just also an- another part of this is that the conflict of interest and the different... Uh, franchises within the sport and how disenfranchised it is that even if the ATP does say something, what's to say that the ITF and the Grand Slams and, you know, I mean, if this gets sweeped up long and long enough under the rug, I mean, pretty soon we'll have the Australian Open starting and, you know, it'll just be another vacuum of until something is done, you know, in the legal system, which it clearly won't be since Olia is not uh, pressing charges. But another part of this is also that uh, it happened at Labor Cup, and Labor Cup is um, part of Labor Cup is owned by Team Eight, which is um, the agency that uh, Roger Federer is also part of. And um, uh, you know, Federer has recently taken Zverev under his wing, and you know they played a bunch of exhibition tour uh, together at the end of last year. And you know, you know Federer has a stake in the Labor Cup as well, and so. You know, all of these things, it kind of makes me wonder what the agency will do about it and how they'll address this moving forward and whether or not everyone uh, cooperating in the agency is aware of all of these details and has looked at it, you know, with the diligence that it should be looked at. So that's another pressing question I have. Well, the agency's job is going to be to protect their client. They're paid to do so. Right. So I wouldn't expect to see much from them other than doing everything they can to repair uh, Zverev's reputation. And by the way, I think for the first time, Zverev was actually reading a prepared statement today Correct. in uh, today in London in, in advance of the ATP finals because he was reading off of his phone. It's the first time that I think that teammate has actually uh, deployed their PR people to kind of guide Zverev on what to say. I feel like they took too long. <laughs> I think I they feel like I don't that know. Too. I don't know if yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they were behind trying to just guide Zverev like on the sidelines, say, "Hey, listen, just say something along those lines." Yeah, that's what uh, it whatever. Like. Try to prove that you're confident. But I don't know if I think off of the first. I would say like the the first statement that he did on Instagram was was passable in a sense he wasn't great but it was passable he wasn't condescending but after that like the the whole speech of the smile i think was it was a red flag all over the place and i feel like and that is with teammate teammate is a as a pr agency as you said like that's it's their job they have to do it they have a client they have to you know honor their their services to or towards him regardless of whether he is guilty or not this is how the world rolls um but um People have been asking about Federer, Federer as well, and I've I've thought about it as I was listening to podcasts this morning and yesterday, and I'm wondering. I don't think necessarily anybody needs to speak out about this. I think it could be, 
more advisable um, for them to be like, um, I'm not just going to, I'm not going to interfere. I'm not going to say anything because it's, it's not on my league. I'm not a, I'm just a tennis professional, like, per, you know, in a way. So, and I have nothing to do with this. I didn't even know this was happening in the case that they didn't know that was happening. If they did, then that is a problem. <laughs> but, um, and I feel like the same applies to Federer. It's maybe, maybe at some point he would say something because as Vansh said, um, he did some tours with him and whatnot. Maybe Federer would, would be interesting to say a word. But I think teammate is really a hundred percent all the time behind what Federer behind what Federer says in the social media because he's too big of a person. He's, he's he may not be your goat in your mind, but he's definitely most likely the biggest tennis personality in the world right now. So, yeah, I don't. I don't think it's uh, fair to to Roger. Um... I, I I look if I were if I were Roger I would just say look I hope it's not true and leave it at that um, but uh, I mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think it's fair to him that he needs to speak on on behalf of this issue any more or any less than anyone else because obviously you know the way the way domestic abuse is th- there's a reason it's domestic it's a private matter it's not a public matter so there's no way that that Roger really could have known and I I just don't think any of this should should fall on him. Yeah, I totally ag- mm-hmm. agree with Gil on that. You know, I, I echo his sentiment in that sense that it's not up to Roger to really, you know, change Sasha's reputation or anything like that. You know, it's not, it is domestic, it's private in that sense. And so I think he should just leave it at that and, you know, just continue on. I guess we should move on to maybe happier thoughts now. <laughs> um, yeah. How has Verev... <laughs> Appearances affected your Paris enjoyment. <laughs> well, what's your question, Vansh? Well, I mean, it's been a vacuum of clearly the vacuum of silence, and the way he's handled it has made it hard for commentators, you know, because they're like, should I address his actual tennis? And he just had an impressive win over Nadal, and he's, you know, playing, he's hitting big serves, and he's moving in, he's doing all the things that, you know, you'd want him, that David Ferrer would have wanted him to do, that he's been. You know, he had a great week in Paris and almost won the title. So from that standpoint, it's like, what? how do you find that balance between addressing it? Because you can't just ignore it. You know, I mean, it's not, you can't just push it under the rug like it's not happening. So from that standpoint, it's a l- little bit uncomfortable. And I guess a lot of people were uncomfortable with the with the stance that, you know, he's compartmentalizing. He's doing it so well. Look at him on and off the court, everything that's going on. He's still... Managing to, you know, no double faults. I mean, you know, everything is going, everything is going great. He's playing positive tennis, but it's, it's tough to kind of ignore that, isn't it? For sure. I I think you use the word uncomfortable. I call it, you know, awkward. I kind of agree with you there. The social media accounts were uh, ignoring him, which was, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that was, that was strange. That was awkward. Um, And uh, I think the, the worst thing that you could have done is actually, and I tweeted about this, but a couple of people made the error of actually congratulating Zverev for focusing on the tennis and playing well despite the off-court distractions, which uh, the analogy that I came up with, that's like congratulating someone for not crashing after drinking 11 beers and getting on the road. You know, so so that's off the mark. But yeah, it, it, it was difficult 
it was it was very difficult to to cover uh because you know what are you supposed to focus on yeah yeah well um to be fair i think uh when i was watching matches i was i was specifically watching Zverev matches because i was cheering so much against him this week so it was it was kind of like a funny feeling when uh i was watching his matches and i was watching players and they were missing points and when i I was starting to disengage in those matches when Zverev started like actually winning them, and that was my my issue. It's like it felt, and I can't I can't say for sure, but I would I would imagine it affected some players as well in the way that they faced him, because at some at some point maybe the players would have to compartmentalize as well and, and not take it upon themselves to be like, hey, I gotta take this guy out of here. <laughs> so, you know. But it must feel awkward as well as a, as a fellow player to know all the things that are going on and you're like entering the court against that guy. It probably is in the back of their minds as much as, as it should be in, in, in his mind, I guess. So, but yeah, that that's essentially it for me. I just feel like it's just awkward for everybody. Just kind of like, hey, is, is like nobody going to talk about this it's type of uh, feeling I find? Yeah, it was certainly like an elephant in the room type situation. And, you know, I wonder what's going to happen when WTA players start coming back and we have combined events or when there's crowds and, you know, you know how and pretty much a lot of players could be asked about it in their press conference. And then it's up to the fan bases and the tribalism of social media to really dictate, you know, go is he in this camp where he supports him or is he in this camp where you know so that can get a little bit bit ugly and a bit distracting from tennis and you know so i guess it's this just let the we'll just see how it plays out but it's uh it's certainly it was certainly interesting you know this week when because now the finals are coming and like you mentioned the social media accounts i mean they were like tagging, they were doing like hot shots of every player and they were tagging all of the players and their accounts and they just purposely didn't tag Zverev and it was blatantly obvious. And There's a pretty funny post today with uh, the photo and someone just like erased Zverev in Photoshop. So like it was just Schwar- <laughs> yeah. Schwartzman in the corner and there was like an awkward amount of space between the two players because someone took out <laughs> It was... Hey, I do. I think you make a good point, though, about the crowd, and I'm really curious what that would have been like, uh, and how, it, you know, if if Paris was, let's say, filling their stadium, you know, and there was no pandemic, I do wonder what yeah. the reception would have been. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I cannot even imagine. Like it's it's imagine Djokovic against Federer, center Corey Wimbledon. <laughs> But like times ten, it's like in the sense that like people cheering against Verev, no matter who is on the other side of the court. Yeah, yeah. The match against Manorino that he Manorino could have won, you would have the the stadium would have blown up. Like the match would have mm-hmm. taken four hours to finish because it would have been so many um, pauses for for booing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I guess more. I guess switching gears. Um, you know, talking about the tennis. Um, what did you guys make of uh, Rafael Nadal playing in Paris and his, the, I guess, not playing so great, but, um, you know, indoors has never really been his strongest surface. He's never won Paris before, never won the ATP finals, you know, was coming in 
on the back of having won the French, but so a lot more fresh than he would have been in previous years, where he's usually nicked out by this time of the year. And, you know, the certainly the low bounce doesn't do him any favors on these indoor courts. And I guess considering that, you could say it was a positive that he got, uh, you know, four matches in and, you know, seemed to be getting... I would have expected him to look a little bit sharper, maybe by the time he played Karenia Busta in the quarters. But, uh, you know, he was just, uh, you know, struggling for rhythm in, in the semifinals against Zverev because he was being forced to block a lot of returns. His return, his returning was just off in general. I thought he actually served pretty pretty well, and that kept him in the match for most of the for most of the match. And he was trying to be aggressive off the first ball, but you know his, his balls sometimes can you know be in the strike zone for a lot of players, and they can really step in and dictate. And especially off his, especially players with strong backhands, they can really step in and drive that thing cross court hard and deep to the Nadal forehand, and then really just because really just test his defense, which, as we know, isn't the same as what it is on clay at Roland Garros. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. what you guys made of that. Well, I guess for me, like when I was watching Nadal, like the, the first thing that I, I noticed, in a sense, was how, how, how much he seemed a little bit off, in a sense. Like, as you mentioned, he was missing a lot in... It, even when he was taking control of rallies, like he sometimes, like when it came to the finishing blow, he would just miss a forehand. And I don't know if it's just him; he just never got to get adjusted to uh, the the conditions in the sense that um, the the low bounce of the court and the speed were totally different from clay courts, where he just is just used to. And um, props to him for making it into the uh, into the semifinals against good servers. Like uh, he he struggled against Lopez. Uh, and he could have struggled more against Lopez. Honestly, he he broke um, in the la- in the end of the second set, and then he just ran away with the match. But it was it took him it took him a while to find uh find a find an opening, if you will. Lopez was a little bit different because it only took um one bad service game, and then Nadal's in the match, and that was it. But like against uh, players like um um Cariño Busta, he had to find some rhythm. And against Zverev, who has the serve and has the rhythm, it was definitely the toughest matchup because he wasn't just simply going to miss. Um, he wasn't simply going to just miss uh, in rallies. He was going to like chase uh, his shots over and over, and Nadal was needing to dictate. But I don't know. I just feel like Nadal just doesn't feel comfortable on those courts. That that's the only thing. Like I feel like he's never really. And the zone, he's always a little bit off, you know. Like that's that's the only thing that comes to me. Um, I don't know if there was any indication of how London is going to to be, but if it is, then he might be in trouble because, well, yeah, it's he's he's going to need to find find a way to pep talk himself into you know just really being there in the match like fully because that's the only thing for me. He, he never really felt like he was a hundred percent always there. That was the thing. Right. I was struck by by the returning for the most part. I think that shot really prevented him from feeling good about his game at all times. I think it was the, the frustrating shot all week. And it's just the crazy thing about it is it's on the heels of his greatest returning performance ever. You know, he put every single return back in play against Novak at the French and, you know, won the majority of 
first serve return points, zero through four shots against Djokovic, which is an unbelievable indication of how amazing his return was in that final. And then, you know, next time we see him on the court in Paris, it's like the problem shot. So I did not see that coming. I thought that Nadal was uh, in a good position to try to win this tournament for the first time. And I think it's always a motivating factor for a player as great as Nadal when, you know, you have a trophy missing from your collection, but still not to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you guys pretty much, pretty much said it all. I guess another thing that, yeah, two things, the return, but then also I felt like his never, he was never really in control with his backhand, which he normally is so good at mixing up the heights and pace and spins. And he was just kind of floating them back to stay in rallies and wasn't really injecting that pace that he can, you know, cross court hard to the opponent's forehand, which he did, which he did so well in that French Open final. And obviously, it's just really that aggression that was missing from his game. I felt like he was a bit passive, starting out sets, you know, a little bit slow and not really just struggling to get into service games, struggling to get into his opponent's service games. And because normally once he problem solves and once he gets a few reps under his belt, that's when you feel like, okay, now the match can change. But against players like Zverev or Djokovic or, you know, guys that serve big and can hit him off the court, it's too, it's a little bit too good, too late, you know? Because I felt like against Zverev, he had he had a chance to maybe come back in that second set, but it, you know, against against lesser opposition, maybe he would have been he would have found a way. So I think uh, credit Zverev there because he never really his game never really let up. I guess from that standpoint. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> for for Nadal, like the, the the biggest difference I find for the French Open to this. Uh, court in Paris, I find is that uh, Paris was unusually l- slow, and uh, whereas like Paris was probably, I don't know if it's been the case for for since forever, but it, I, I seem to got the imp- get the impression that it was unusually fast and low bouncing in contrast. So, I mean, again, like Nadal is a is a very experienced player, uh, and he could. Uh, who's won obviously Roland Garros and Wimbledon back to back? He has some experience in like switching surfaces quickly and just adapting. But maybe the difference was a little bit too much at this point, and he he maybe couldn't get even with the matches on. He was never really in control. I find like so it could be the reason why his serve wasn't working. And I think. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think that he was his best option, his best opportunity, rather, to uh, to win Paris. And he just couldn't do it, just couldn't get past uh, Zverev for my uh, discontentment because I was actually putting uh, Nadal and Medvedev in the final. And I got Medvedev right, but I missed on Nadal um, because he couldn't get past uh, Zverev serve that time, which was sadly too good. So, yeah. I do think this will help him, though, for the ATP Finals, just to get that match play. I mean, if he went into this week with no hardcourt match play, I think he'd have very little chance. But now now that he's felt the hardcourts and he's uh, probably pinpointed what he needs to focus on on the practice court because he's had that intense match play, I think it greatly boosts his chances. And it, who knows, it could even give him an edge over Djokovic, who could be really undercooked 
coming into this tournament. Now, you know, also could just brush it off and look totally fine on a surface where he's the best player in the world on. But, you know, just to to have just three matches in uh, Vienna and to the third match was barely a match against Sanego. It's not it's not as if Djokovic has, has put in what he usually puts in to prepare for this week at the ATP finals. Normally he'd play Shanghai as well. Correct, yeah. And for sure a player who would who uh we thought would, you know, ultimately show better form throughout the year was Daniel Medvedev, uh who went on a hot streak last year, won uh made six finals in a row, won three of them and you know everyone was bullish about and obviously the pandemic happened and before that you know he was something like eight and eight in his last 16 matches and he was a bit cooked to finish the season and didn't really have that freshness and here coming into Paris he had lost five of his last eight matches again and there was a lot of doubt but as Daniil shows that the indoor hard courts really do suit his game and that he can bomb the serve he can keep points he can play that kind of chess game where he can make it really awkward for his opponents by, you know, hitting through the court and hitting the balls. The ball is so low, essentially, just a few feet over the net. And it's just, you know, pretty much the only player who I've seen probably hit with less RPM than Daniil would be like a Demonor, who he played in the quarter, who he played in the round of 16. And that was actually the turning point of the week for Daniil, in a sense, because he lost, he loses that first set to Demonor. And then next thing you know, he cruises through and wins the rest of the tournament wins that match 6-2, 6-2, and then comes back, beats Schwartzman, and then gets plays a really good semi against Raonic, and then really just broke Zverev down with making him generate off of those low balls. And, you know, wasn't just playing a, wasn't just playing that style. He was really mixing in. I, I noticed he was hitting a lot of great slice backhands. He was serving and volleying when he had to. I mean, going big off the second serve, which we know he can do. So he has this ability to find new ways and change the momentum of matches that I find is just impressive. Don't forget to don't forget Kukushkin Vanch on the RPM. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean there's <laughs> other players too like RBA for instance right, as well. Right, right. I think the, I think Kukushkin yeah. I don't have data. I know Infosys uh keeps uh-huh. track of this, but I have a feeling that Kukushkin backhand is the flattest shot on tour. Oh um, yeah. I don't know. You could be right. Yeah. Um in terms of Medvedev, I agree with you. He brought back that wild factor, that unpredictability, that unpredictability that became so fun to watch in the summer of 2019. We really never knew what he was going to do. One match that comes to mind is the Djokovic semifinal at the Western Southern, where Medvedev's like, hmm, I'm losing this match. Let's try something new. I'm going to hit two first serves. And he ends up coming back and, and winning that match. Or... uh serve volleying at the craziest times, which which he he did again this week, something that he did that summer a lot. Just the the ability to kind of go for shots that his opponent is not expecting, he needs that because otherwise he can have a, a pretty monotonous game and he can struggle to to generate offense, but also the low bounce. You gotta mention the low bounce as you did, Vonch, because that can make the difference when it comes to Medvedev's ability to force errors. Even if he doesn't have the strength to hit it through the court and and hit it past someone, he can still force errors by putting them on the run and making them scrape the ball low off the court surface. Yeah, I think it's um, I think that's like one of the main differences as well. Like a 
to one of the reasons why he doesn't do well in clay courts, on clay, clay courts rather, because the ball bounce is a little high, like in, in general, on, on clay courts, and it's a little slower as well. So he's already somewhat paceless. Shots get even more paceless. So they just kind of can they can just sit there. If you're if you're an experienced clay court player, you can just run away with the match because you you know exactly what's coming off of that that shot. And one of the great things about clay is that. Sometimes you can make the ball bounce in more unpredictable ways, in a sense. And like Medvedev probably doesn't like that. And serving volleying is is overall not a great tactic on on uh, clay courts, unless it's extremely un, un, um, unexpected. And even Medvedev cannot make a serving volley so unexpected so many times. At some point, you just kind of like learn how to adapt to that one. Um, but um, yeah, I ca- I guess like a. When you um, mentioned the uh, the semifinal against Djokovic, I think another match that came to mind was uh, the final of the U.S. Open when uh, he was just losing, and he did a lot of the same things as well, like a couple of a crazy um, serving volleys, and, and just like why would you do that at that point with that like whatever strategy? It just doesn't seem to be any sort of tactical analysis or strategy going through his mind. It just seems to to do it because he feels like it or. Uh, he just kind of he probably thinks okay so what is he expecting what is expected for a pl- tennis player to do in those situations let me do the exact opposite <laughs> you know what I mean so like that's kind of uh, one of the things that I find is interesting in, in Medvedev's game yeah um so that, yeah that's true and I mean he's a little bit of an enigma right I mean you look at him and you're just like that style should not work I mean you know you're six foot six yet you're so comfortable from the baseline and you're 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 essentially playing a style of a five foot ten baseliner at times, yet you have the that court awareness and IQ to move in and you know, and that's the other thing too is I think these courts really help his offense to where he actually feels a little more comfortable moving forward, but not as much as he probably should be in in my opinion, to get maybe get to that next level. One thing that changed that US Open match completely for me was when he started coming in and actually taking time away. Because there's only so much uh, pace absorption that you can really do on across surfaces to really win matches against the top top players when because he's giving them a lot of room essentially and for angles and for hitting drop shots and for because he's so far back even when he returns serve but I just think uh, you know he has you where he wants you because because of the moves he's able to do and yeah. it's 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 interesting yeah. Absolutely, Vaughn. She took time away in that match, and he also changed direction, redirected down yeah. the line very, very often. That's what he can do. I think he's the male version of Aggie Radvanska in that sense because he can, yeah, he can he can take pace and redirect it, put it anywhere in the court. He needs to use that because he doesn't have the power. So uh, I think it's very important that he takes time away. I, I agree with that. Yeah, for sure. And I guess, uh, you know, that it was a big accomplishment for him to finally win Paris and really feels, you now really feel like the top eight players, even with the new ranking system, even the 2020 ranking system is so in line with the with with the actual two-year ranking. So I think it was very good for Medvedev to really prove that. I mean, his only title this year, but really big boost for him mm-hmm. and uh, really bullish about his chances chances for London. Um, and, you know, someone who I think could make the year-end finals next year, 
and we were talking to Steve Flink about this, is actually Yannick Sinner, who's in the final of Sofia. And he's playing against Vasek Pashpasil tomorrow. And so, you know, it's a great opportunity for both players who have never won a title. And it's going to be strange just going straight from Sofia to then next day, round-robin play at the ATP finals. But welcome to 2020. Yeah. Speaking, of, speaking of which, like you mentioned how Ian Exner has, has a big chance of being in the, in, the, in the ATP finals, which is hilarious in a sense because... He's outside the top 40 in the world, I think, Correct. right now. And, and he will still be after this week unless he wins the tournament. Yeah, I mean, not, if but mistaken. if you just look at 2020 points alone, um, I was looking today yeah, that he's, true. if he wins the title, he'll be up to 17, which is crazy. I mean, we didn't didn't really have any other run apart from the French Open and a couple, one other semifinal he's made in his career. So this is a huge step forward. And I just don't see many weaknesses in his game, to be honest with you. I just mm-hmm. think he, yeah, he exactly. moves so well, and that's the other the, thing. The forehand would be his biggest weakness, I would say. But like, it's it's not an extremely. It, it's like saying that Federer's weakness is his backhand, in a sense. Like, it, yeah. it's obviously his weakest shot, and he can be it can you can exploit it, but it's but it's there. You know, it's a big shot still. But I, the one thing that I find hilarious is how Yannick Sinner, as an as a not even a top forty. Uh, is being quoted as the next, uh, well, at least by you, as the next um, top 10 player well, who's going to make it in the ATP Finals. And then on the other hand, the Canadian that he's going to be faced is neither named Shapovalov or Felix Ogialiasim, who have both lost their, whatever, four matches to end the season. And it's it's just appalling to see them in in that situation for me. I don't I don't understand, like, what happened. Maybe they're just, like, going through, like, a mental part in, in their life. They're just kind of, like, going through a, a break a breakdown, and they just need a time off. And to be honest, it may be a good thing for them to take the time off. Maybe, maybe Felix has taken too many has take has has took too many has taken too many blows in his finals losses um, over the years, and now he just needs to rest to rest a little bit. So yeah, but props to him for winning the title in Paris in doubles, though. It's it's so it's so strange with with the two Canadians that that you just mentioned. And by the way, shout out to Pospisil. He's been playing really well for a while. I mean, he's he's back. He's yeah. back. Uh, but but mm-hmm. for Chapo and FAA, they're dealing with the same issues, which is, of course, a total coincidence, but it's also true. They're both double faulting too much, and they're both highly erratic and not putting enough balls in the court. Uh, and in Felix's case, I don't think enough is being made out of his backhand, which is just not developing as quickly as it needs to. And he he doesn't really take it down the line very well. And it's not a very precise shot. And the risk-reward balance on that shot is is way off kilter right now, where it's making a lot of errors and it's not doing much damage. It's a heavy shot, but that's something that I think has been kind of underlooked, underpublicized, that FAA really needs to take a look at his backhand. I totally agree with that. I've I've actually been thinking that way for the last two years. I, I, I remember, you know, watching him and he gets such easy power off his forehand side and he's really able to to hurt you with that wing when it's on, you know, and when he's putting balls in the court. And really, like the performance he did against Andy Murray, for instance, at the US Open, you watch a match like that and you're thinking, you know, this guy is rightfully touted as the next big thing and has been for many years. But then there's just other matches where if plan A doesn't work, and he's playing players like, for instance, like he did in the finals that are just more adept and more consistent than him from the back of the court. He really doesn't have many other options 
in his game when it comes to that and the backhand is a little bit of a little bit of a problem i guess uh from from that standpoint that he doesn't really have a whole lot of weight or margin on it and that's why i like somebody like for instance Yannick Sinner when i'm predicting the stuff like he's going to uh, like i'm assuming that there's going to be a full season that he's going to be able to get to the top 10 or top 15 and have a chance to qualify but i do think it's important to note that you know, I mean, Shapovalov was in the same position three years ago, and you know he still hasn't he still hasn't fully developed yet. So when you make predictions like this, you know it's important to keep that in mind. Remember, in 2017, when Shapovalov had that run in Canada, was a qualifier and made the fourth round at Wimbledon. I remember or at the U.S. Open, excuse me, and I remember a lot of people saying like, "Oh, next year by this time he's going to be in the top 10. And you know, it doesn't that linear pro- progression doesn't quite happen uh, for these players. And it takes a lot of time these days to develop those skills. Yeah, I think for me, I the, think the, Sinner's the, special. Yeah, though. Go ahead. I was just going to yeah. say, I, I think yeah. Sinner's pretty special, Andre. Uh, and if you just look at his rate of improvement, it's absolutely mm. astonishing because he wasn't that great a player, you know, four years, you know, three four years ago at all. Um, and he's just he's just on a crazy trajectory, which you have to take notice. This stuff normally doesn't happen slowly. Right, if if you're really really great, it's not normally a slow rise. It generally is pretty fast. Yeah, that's I true. Mean, and he seems to be doing well on all surfaces too. I mean, yeah. like clay, grass. He's transferred it over, yeah. and he he just seems to have this margin in his game where yeah, he's belting the ball, but he seems to also give that. If you watch his backhand, he uses the left wrist so well, and he gets that he gets that extra spin on it that really, like it. It's not only a hard and flat piercing shot, but it's got this margin and this control that he has over it mm-hmm. that and he moves so well and he's able to slide in both corners and he's able to, and he comes in at the right times. And I guess he could get a little stronger physically. Absolutely. He can beef up the serve. He can add a little bit more variety and more dimension to his game, maybe more slices, drop shots, improve the transition game. But really, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I see no reason why he can't be maybe at the level that Rublev is at right now, for instance, yeah. you know, to be, to be fair, I, I, I didn't say this because I think Yannick Sinner is not. I don't think Yannick Sinner is, is like just like a like a fluke that is just gonna come up and like it's just gonna disappear. The, the reason why I say that is because um, while Yannick Sinner, um, top fifty player, is still not even top forty, is being so impressive. Probably the player that has caused Rafael Nadal the most trouble in the um, well, probably after. Um, well, he's caused Nadal like a, a whole lot of problem in, in Roland Garros, and he was playing fantastically well. He could have taken a set, maybe two. Um, but contrasting with players like, as you were saying, like uh, who ha- who are kind of not really living up to the expectations in Shapovalov and um, Felix Ogiel-Eliassime. Shapovalov is world number twelve right now. Eliassime is um, not sure if he's top twenty. Twenty two, um, I think. Twenty two, eight. Yeah. But I do think we need to we need to give these players a little more a little more time. I do think Shapovalov has made strides. It's Absolutely. not like he has. I, I, mean, I think we yeah quarterfinals of the yeah. U.S. Open. He made, uh, you know, he's done. You know, he could have made the finals of Rome, right? I mean, he was yeah. just he was serving for that match against Schwartzman, and <clears throat> he had a bad line call go against him in the second round of the French. And I just think since then it's you know I mean playing at the end of the year it's not easy week after week. Mm-hmm. after week and he's been dealing with a shoulder issue as well from what i know yeah it's true and so i, I just think and maybe you know playing sofia like it was already kind of his season was basically already over right mm-hmm. now i just 
the thing that's a little worrying is the he's just too emotional on the court. I find. Oh yeah, no, that that was that's my to... my biggest thing. I think for for Eliasim, he, he he lacks a little bit of maturity in terms of um, gameplay. Like to just the the tennis IQ that he needs to have a little bit, like a watch shots to to choose when and maybe of, of course yeah. of the practice and the backhand especially. But for Shapovalov, he just needs to find what works for him in terms of his emotions. Like. He can't pretend to hide behind a curtain of meditation and, and Zen because it's not working. We've seen it. It isn't. He's tried to be like that uh, and it's, it sort of almost worked during the U.S. Open when he, he almost beat, um, well, he could have almost beaten um, Pablo Carina Busta. Right. But then he's back at his mashing rackets right now. So it's yeah. It's clearly something isn't, isn't, isn't working for him. So he... Probably needs to like figure it out, like something that works for him better than just, um, you know, taking a deep breath during the uh, the change of ends. Maybe it just doesn't work for everybody. You know, sometimes you just need to like, um, you know, scream at yourself, like yell at yourself, uh, like uh, Rublev does so much. Like he he keeps like just yelling on court like all the time. He's very emotional, but he uh, he he channels it so well into playing well, <laughs> playing good tennis. So. As much as he can do. Like, Rublev is no um, new Roger Federer or anything like that. He's pretty uh, one-dimensional, but makes it work. He makes it work really well. He's a very dangerous player when he's on. And he he's very emotional, just like Andy Murray as well is very emotional. But they are able to work with that on their advantage. And not Chapovalo. Chapovalo tries to internalize that and make it so that try to make it go away instead of working with it you know whereas like i feel like for Eliasim, he just looks like he he just doesn't know yet sort of like he hasn't really clicked i find that that for me that was the thing for 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 me in terms of Eliasim. and he may have a little bit of a moment when he when when he won his first title um yeah in in singles just to add to that those are all great points i love how you kind of dissected chapovalov's uh, you know, mental approach and just because I have noticed that is the mm. kind of meditation you see in the changeovers and then what's actually transpiring on the court. But I think Felix, Felix, on the other hand, Felix is a player who I think is very mature beyond his years and will really be able to analyze the season as a whole. You know, mm. I think he'll really look at this off season and really he's the type of player to me that will just go and talk with his team and really just figure out ways and improve because I think he's hungry. I think he's determined and i think he's patient as well like he's gonna he's going through this process he's going through this process and making six finals at 20 years old is still a pretty big accomplishment he wasn't expected to win most of those finals so i think he you know i'm more encouraged about felix at this point than i am about shapovalov and i you know Mm -hmm. i just i I just think anybody who thinks like these guys will made will win majors in the future who says like Oh yeah, they'll be competing for slam titles in the future. Like we don't know that. You know, we can't predict longevity. We can't predict how long the big three are going to keep playing. We can't. The, right now, there's still a tier or two tiers below the Sitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev uh, team generation. So, you know, I guess if you want to add anything on that, Gil? Well, I'm I'm actually probably the other way. If I ignore age now, FAA is what is it? It's two or three years younger. I think it's two and twenty. Than, I think it's two. Then Chapo? They're yeah. about the same age. Uh, one, year. one year. One year. One year. One uh, year. Chapo is 21. Yeah. Chapo is 99 born. Chapo is 99 born and Felix is yeah. 2000. So okay. 20 and 21. So I'm yeah. actually, I, I was, I was 
extremely encouraged by how Shapovalov came out of the pandemic uh, at the mm-hmm. U.S. Open, yeah. and I thought his footwork was so much better than I've ever seen it, and I think he worked really mm-hmm. hard on on his fitness during that time. I, I look at the return adjustments that he's made under uh, Mikhail Yuzhny, and I, mm-hmm. I see a lot of positive things. I'm actually not all that discouraged about Shapovalov. I think it could be a health problem mm-hmm. that he's going through right now, and that also affects the mm-hmm. mind. And I, I also think maybe it's a burnout issue. Maybe he worked too hard. Maybe he didn't give himself a break uh, over the long pause. And this is a really stressful time to play tennis. So I'm kind of excited for, for what's to come in 2021 for Shapovalov. Felix, I am growing a little bit discouraged at the same problems persisting and not changing at all. The, the double faults have been kind of in a stagnant place for a really long time. And ultimately... The number of unforced errors he's making, even on the forehand side, which is a great shot, I think Andre hit the nail on the head. It's knowing what to do with it. It's knowing how close to the lines am I going to play. It's having a transition game so I can hit with more margin on my approach shot and be confident in finishing on the next ball with the volley. It's having a drop shot so when you're playing tennis Sandgren at... uh, I, I forget them. Yeah, Western lost and Southern. Them. Right. When you're playing tennis Sangren at the Western Southern and Sangren is is 15 feet back, you don't try to hit the forehand by him and you just drop shot. Uh, it's it's seeing these things on the court. And I just, he's making, he's missing too much. And he's been missing too much for, for a long time now. And I think the big problem with what's frustrating for me about that is he is such an unbelievable athlete that he really should be a great defensive player. And he should not be, uh, you know, he's not John Isner. He doesn't need to hit a winner on the second ball. He can defend. He's that kind of athlete. So I just wish that I have, you know, I just wish that we could start to see that adjustment. And I haven't seen it yet. Well, I guess maybe maybe he's taking steps towards it because he just broke up with one of his coaches just recently. So it yeah. may be a sign that, He's deciding to work um, folk with focus in, or on just one side instead of having multiple opinions. But we'll see. I think uh, I think Vansha yeah. and, and you too, you, you also are hitting like really important points here. Just kind of like how the season is different and they are players who are still developing and just very young. Um, so maybe 2021 will be an exciting period for, for them. I think it could be it could bring really good results. Maybe I'm very confident actually that uh, Aliasim will actually win uh, his first title next year. Um, I hope that Shapovalov will be able to uh, manage, and I, I hope that you're right that like maybe maybe it's a it's a burnout or a, or injury issue that is affecting his mind. Maybe the meditation can work still, but I I still feel like he needs to work. But I. I am. I mean, I'm encouraged. I, I've definitely seen great things for him um, from him this year. So, I think it could be interesting 2021 yeah. for those two guys in particular, and for Sinner. I'm excited to see Sinner um, in more matches next year. Yeah, and there's so many more players. I mean, on the lower levels like Alcaraz and oh, stuff, yeah. and um, you know, players from Spain. So, I think we 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 have a, a lot of young mm-hmm. talent, you know, coming our way and. Pretty soon, in in four or five years, I mean, it's going to be a very different landscape. Mm. But we we said the same thing four or five years ago too, so it's not like, yeah. So, all right. So yeah, um, thank you for being here, Gil. Oh my my pleasure. Always fun to talk tennis with you too. Yeah, uh, same for you, man. Um, 
so yeah um thank you guys all for listening um make sure that you follow gil gross on monday match analysis on youtube and his handle on twitter is i have a really bad memory for those things at gil underscore gross gil with two l's perfect perfect that's as simple as that all those stuff are going to be in the description including the links to the articles that we've mentioned about this very situation uh you can find those uh in the description and follow us on Instagram and Facebook and on Twitter at VanishV2K and at tennis underscore bagels. So yeah, I'll see you all next time. Thank you all. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.